Welcome to Carbon Times. With the UK hosting COP26 this year, the Carbon Times podcast has been developed to get the industry talking, to share journeys, and more importantly, share knowledge. Carbon Profile has sponsored this podcast to help their clients and the wider industry learn from each other and pull together to really push the decarbonisation of the UK. We are starting with what we know best, the real estate industry. With the UK government putting their 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution in place, Carbon Times will be running podcast series to explore the topics around the 10-point plan. In series one, we begin with greener buildings, with the objective to drive better building performance and move away from fossil fuels. We know that 80% of buildings in use today will still be in use in 2050, and that real estate accounts for 40% of the UK total carbon emissions. Each series from this podcast will explore topics taking the key goals of COP26 to form the discussion. The key goals being adaptation, mitigation, finance and collaboration. For the real estate industry, we will explore owning and managing property, green leases, tenants obligations, the costs and the impact on property prices. We have interviewed some of the best from industry leaders, regulation setters, companies that are leading initiatives and those driving programs to work towards the current key dates associated with the Greener Buildings Plan and the drive to net zero carbon emissions. We want to provide insight across our industry, highlighting the challenges and the ambitions. We will highlight practical examples of how industry specialists are driving change across their sphere of influence. We all have a responsibility to collaborate and develop a world-leading approach to the decarbonisation of the spaces and the places we use. After billions of years of evolution, nature is our best teacher. In this regard, restoring natural capital, accelerating nature-based solutions, and leveraging the circular bioeconomy will be vital to our efforts. As we tackle this crisis, our efforts cannot be a series of independent initiatives running in parallel. The scale and scope of the threat we face call for a global systems-level solution based on radically transforming our current fossil fuel-based economy to one that is genuinely renewable and sustainable. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. How do we get the private sector all pulling in the same direction? After nearly two years now of consultation, CEOs have told me that we need to bring together global industries to map out in very practical terms what it will take to make the transition. We know from the pandemic that the private sector can speed up timelines dramatically when everyone agrees on the urgency and the direction. Thank you for joining us on this episode five of Carbon Times podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about collaboration. We're joined today by two guests who both are in influential roles that can really help to drive collaboration. So first of all, I will introduce Amira Hashimi. Hi, Amira. Can you just introduce yourself for us? 
Uh, so thank you. My name is Amira Hashimi. Uh, I'm the Sustainability Manager at Fraser's Property UK. I'm responsible for uh, collaborating within the business, uh, working in the asset management team and liaising with the development teams and our sort of corporate team as well. Um, Fraser's Property Integrated Asset Owner, Manager and Developer in the UK with our headquarters in Singapore and we mostly own and manage business parks and commercial offices outside of central London. Excellent. Thank you very much. And also we're joined by Jonathan Hale. Jonathan, would you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Paul. Um, so I am ESG and Sustainability Director within Property Management at BMP Paribas Real Estate. Essentially, we look after clients' properties during the whole time of their cycle and ensure that through embedding ESG throughout our management practice, that things like data that's required for informed decisions to be made on things like net zero pathways, ESG action plans, and also to support responses to the global real estate sustainability benchmark are well catered for enabling action to take place to ensure that our clients can achieve their objectives and also form new objectives based on a solid foundation. We support many pan-European clients, but primarily my role is focused on the UK. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. So uh, thanks for giving up your time to join us today on what we feel is a really important topic. So we've been recording a number of these podcasts over the last few weeks, just before and coinciding with COP26. One of the key goals was collaboration and all of the talks and all of the effort that's come out of there is very much around driving that whole agenda of collaboration so we can all work together on the decarbonisation agenda. We've been really looking forward to you know, having the opportunity to be able to record this one specifically off the back of the fact that in every conversation we've had to date, the word collaboration has come up as a key way forward and a key driver to all of this. So it shows really that we're in a space in the world now where no one can do this on their own. No one organisation will be able to achieve this in isolation. So the main driver of us bringing this podcast together was to get everyone together get people speaking especially where we can get people from different organizations as you know we can collectively learn together so as this requires us all to pull together from all sides financing projects operating buildings when they're in operation management of the space that we build how long it's going to last how it's maintained etc there's so many different touch points around this decarbonization agenda Jonathan, how do you see your role being influential around collaboration and driving that collaborative piece? Yeah, really important. I guess since the pandemic started, we've seen the interest in ESG being top of the agenda, you know, and that's just been part of the fact, I think, sort of a prelogue to that time last year where ESG was already rising up the agenda. Glasgow was postponed, but having just had COP26, we're just seeing all sorts of fund manager types interested in support around strategy implementation and whereby they sometimes have other consultants in tow with there to almost act as um, technical experts to prove whether or not net zero feasibility studies are accurate can they be delivered and is the pricing real i guess what i mean by real is can you actually do that we see many reports that look great and are able to model a trajectory and meet Paris proof targets or follow the CREM model. But it's important that at each 
stage of either a client relationship with a single asset or a number of assets that I guess you stick to a core formula of data, appropriate levels of certification, tenant, occupier engagement, and really tracking that through in terms of progress and ensuring that the right stakeholders are present throughout whilst having a defined sense of governance. It doesn't have to be every person at every meeting, but I think real structure and, and planning around this to get the right outputs and to make it effective and efficient is, is really important. Amira, how about yourself? How do you see your role in collaboration? Yeah, my role is all about collaboration. I guess you could call uh, both Jonathan and I collaborators and probably change management coordinators within our business. For me specifically, collaborating with our asset managers, with our development team to ensure that we are delivering, as Jonathan was saying, the genuine requirements and actions to reach net zero carbon. So Fraser's Property UK and Fraser's Property Limited, our, our parent company, have committed to net zero carbon by 2050, aligned with science-based targets. Next year, we're going through their certification process, but all our modelling has been done on that 1.5 degrees with SBTI. So not only within the business, but I also collaborate and work very closely with our property managers, MAP, and their sustainability manager and I meet fortnightly. We go through very, in a, a lot of detail, actually, um, what they're doing across the business parks and really working together on delivering the best value that we can across the assets that we, that we own and manage. Similarly, with some of our supply chain as well, engagement with their own sustainability managers. So, for example, interface flooring, we procure carbon neutral carpets from them, have good engagement with their sustainability managers, just so we're both knowledgeable and aligned up with they've got their own targets we've got ours how can we both help each other meet our respective targets and make a positive impact on the environment you both mentioned engagement there which again is a key aspect to this do you see Amira, in your role are there any objections to that type of engagement do you see from the customer chain I wouldn't say there's objections. I'd say that where there may be hesitancy, it's potentially either due to this topic is not either high on their agenda, it's not part of maybe their KPIs, it's not something that perhaps the company has an objective for. I think there's sort of interest and they might want to know a bit more, but I wouldn't say there's sort of outright objection towards collaborating or at least exploring how we could work together. I think in general, as long as you speak to the right person, and I think that's also really key is you get the right person to speak to, that you then can forge a pathway of let's explore how we could work together. And maybe it's not that we fully work together, but I'm able to give them something, they can give me something, and we've just built, you know, a bit of a relationship, there's a bit of trust there, and maybe the collaboration happens in the future. Excellent. Jonathan, in the customer chain, what's your experience around that engagement? So we're finding that there are a growing number of clients that are really doing more than just scratching the surface, I guess, to see how embedded what you could sort of define as a, a good level of ESG competence is embedded within everything we do. And I guess to preempt that or to kind of give you a flavor of where that's started from, we've all used to sort of management systems, um, the way of working that, that might be centered around quality or environment, energy. But I think 
more so we're seeing now supply chain sort of being scrutinized more closely for es and g and so our business for example make sure that as part of a supplier onboarding process that we have a very thorough check around principles around es and g and in that way our clients know that as well as being part of a bank and having those kind of financial checks that with an embedded level of esg competence that we're also supporting them even at arm's length in a sustainable manner i think in terms of what our clients are looking for they and perhaps Amira may have an angle on this, but I'm finding that the pressures they are facing means that it's not necessarily ourself as a managing agent in the way that MAP supports Fraser's Property um, UK. We're finding that that conversation is very much coming from the investment manager now, the asset manager, mm-hmm. rather than it being the other way around. Whereas before we were looking to try and drive business, raise concerns around potential shortfalls in compliance or highlight financial sums and related emissions to be saved from energy efficiency measures and so on. And now it's very much that should be happening as standard. And it's about setting a vision, ensuring that you understand one another as client through to their incumbent managing agent in in this case and you just go out and execute a strategy it almost doesn't need to be too prescriptive you've just got to sort of look at some key headings that center around the things you must do like compliance but then the things that are objective based like net zero and building certification program in use and general occupier engagement but we're seeing all of that space to come together now and i think it's aided by the fact that both tenant and landlord want similar things or it's at the closest point of convergence that i've seen for a long time and i think amira's point around science-based target setting as well and around scope three and that broader collaboration that's required in order for us to meet net zero that's a discussion point in itself so yeah i would say in terms of the client supply chain or that's in a healthy space but again it will be measured by what actions are actually taken and in terms of you know what is achieved that's the bit that everyone wants to see and to uh, monitor closely so that it's done rather than can do or spoken about i think that's a really good point around transparency of being transparent that in june of this year we praises property we published our net zero carbon roadmap and we were very transparent in our emission reduction targets for scope one two and three by 2030. And we've made the commitment to be net zero carbon across our managed areas by 2030. We've done a bit of a analysis of our occupiers. And I've gone through all of our occupiers in the UK across our portfolio to see which ones had also made net zero carbon commitments or had committed to other types of approaches, whether that was they align with the sustainable development goals or they report on the GRI disclosures or CDP, uh, just where else we might have alignment through our organisations. And by value, over 20% of our occupiers have also committed to net zero carbon. Some of them by 2050, others by 2030, they have sort of different definitions. Others are already saying that they are carbon neutral through offsets. So to a degree, with over one in five of our occupiers by value, we've got an alignment. So what my sort of role is now is to explore how we can help each other to reduce carbon emissions. They've got an interest in reducing their scope one emissions, which would be their own 
office space, which happens to be Fraser's property. That's our scope three emissions, the bases that they lease from us. So we both have an interest in working together to reduce emissions in that space. And I suppose it also depends on how large their scope one emissions are compared to the rest of their supply chain. Often scope one emissions are quite minimal compared to scope three. Um, But there's the business case for that staff engagement piece on scope one emissions. Um, And I think that's where there's a behaviour change piece in let's actively try to reduce scope one emissions in line with the, the energy hierarchy principles, which are fabric first approach followed by energy efficiency, followed by improving or increasing renewable energies, and then lastly, offsetting, sort of known, I suppose, as the best practice approach. There's a really good opportunity for that staff engagement piece around reducing emissions. Even that comes under things such as encouraging active travel, having cycling facilities available for staff, getting them engaged in switch off campaigns. So there is that overlap and it's just getting to the right person from our occupiers perspective to see where we can collaborate a bit more. It's really good that we're starting to see a lot more of those conversations taking place. And there is a lot more talk, just as you say, with those places where that wouldn't necessarily have happened in the past, especially throughout the supply chain, which we found really, you know, a really interesting piece when we're working with clients. And if I put my carbon profile hat on, when we're working with clients and we, you know, moving through their sustainability strategies and their ESG strategies, that all of those points come together and helping them to then identify those points of collaboration across their supply chains has really increased over the last few years an area where i continually see a disconnect in the world that we live is between cost and carbon being considered in the same vein i find it maintains a bit of a challenge i think we've all grown up in a real estate environment where cost has always been king you know i've been subject to working in d e companies where you know you design something amazing from a structural point of view and then by the time it's built it's just gray and boring because you know everything that could have been in there has been value costed out jonathan what's your experience around that cost and carbon piece and do you feel there's a disconnect there in the example you just gave i guess i've got limited input there the bit that i could say I guess in terms of collaboration, making sure that the value of what a design brief has specified versus the role of an architect and then the various parties that pull that together, either refurb or build something from scratch and then have that, you know, going into operation and so on. And then before you play past the past, then it goes around different asset managers on different hold cycles attached to funds. I think the glue that needs to be there is one of a holistic ESG plan, I guess, in the sense that going back to one of Amira's points before that, yeah, through through building design, trying to sort of factor in the highest level of embedded ESG in terms of design or present throughout that spec. So that could be things as simple as in a central city location making sure there are enough bike spaces that bike access and there is almost like a big thing made about the fact that you can get to work by bicycle or walking and for those of you that aren't traveling in your suits because they get ruined or get wet on you know winter's english day you're able to come into work sort yourself out get to your desk within a reasonable period of time and you're well connected you've got light flowing into a space you've got good indoor air quality and i think there is a bit of a brand that can be attached to either a type 
you know, an office type or a building type that connects itself to its occupants, but also provides a link between occupants and a local community, whatever that might be, if it's a nursery, a school, a local community hub, and also sees itself in the way that we've seen retail become repurposed as somewhere that is more than just office space and can potentially be used for other things at, at weekends. So it's not just standalone for between the hours of you know eight till six of a working day. Following that through though, I think in terms of the design point, I'll only be able to say so much there with my experience. But what I do think is that whilst in operation, I often see big news around things like Briam, but actually a lot of that tends to be design. And even now, people are producing insight articles around the fact that Briam indicates value changes of X within central London space, but they're not specifying that uh, in use. And in use is really, really important because that's the, you know, the, the main lifespan of the property that it's around for sort of 80, 80 years or so. And it's really important to make sure that whatever was value costed out or specified that that story isn't sort of parked and then new occupants or building management team almost have to start again and potentially work with something that was never as good as it was designed to be. And they may spend 15, 20 years trying to get a building, especially within the net zero context now of trying to get it to perform at a level that it perhaps should, maybe it can't. Then they try all of the points of the hierarchy that Amira mentioned with things like on-site renewables, reducing the building down in terms of its energy use intensity once it's fully decarbonized to the best it can be and then looking at offsets. So, you know, I wonder whether at some point there will start to become a space for lawyers to really get involved and act upon ESG sort of litigation around these parts of the cycle that aren't perhaps as joined up as they could be. And even now in looking at sort of a particular project that I've sort of been a little attached to. I'm finding it a little surprising at times that sometimes they'll want to partner with occupiers. Given what we've just experienced in COP26 and collaboration, just sometimes seems far more difficult than it should be. So going back to Amira's point about finding the right person, where does it stop? Like how far up the chain do you have to go before someone replies to an email, which basically means you want to get that whole building data, that whole envelope, rather than just the stairwells, um, you know, cycling facilities, all that stuff, outdoor lighting, you know, how far do you have to go until you get that in order to make a report really count for something as opposed to just telling a client, if it were a mirror that I was appointed by, that we can do this in your sort of stairwells and so on, but really we can't do much more than that. You know, it's it's not good enough, is it? Mm. So I think that's where we're at. I just think there needs to be a greater context around keeping that glue from before a building's even been put up, refurbished through to its operation and making sure that perhaps through leasing uh, agreements between that lawyers sort of pull together that there is a there's just a bit more glue that mean that people have to work together definitely amira what about your experience there in terms of that conflict from design costs and then through to operation um similar to jonathan i don't work specifically in the development team so i'm not assigned to sort of a particular project i mostly work on um enhancing our and retrofitting our existing buildings but that is a a huge challenge of a lot of our portfolio when we acquired it in 2017 there were no BRIAM ratings we didn't 
have transparency about how the buildings were performing, whether there have been sort of many efficiency improvements since the buildings were built sometimes in either the 60s or the, the 80s. And so one of the first steps was to go through and do REAM in use certifications alongside sustainability audit reports. So we had like a detailed plan of here are the next steps we need to improve energy efficiency, but here's also what the building already has in it, which we didn't know beforehand. So I think that was very enlightening and then will help us on our roadmap to net zero carbon and really pushing it beyond business as usual to ensure that we're prioritising decarbonisation. Although I would say, phrases, we do still take a, a holistic approach to sustainability and achieving net zero carbon and ensuring that biodiversity and the health and well-being of our occupiers is still of the utmost importance because we can't achieve net zero and decimate the environment, the biodiversity at the same time. Another point, if I could add, is probably on perhaps a little bit more work on valuing low carbon buildings. So Jonathan referenced, I think it was JLL who's and Savills who have done some recent reports on the valuation or void rates in central London. What I would like to see is that expanded outside of central London uh, once they have more data, but valuations beyond Briam, because now net zero carbon buildings, some of them going for the title of a net zero carbon building and might not even be aligning with a Briam or an existing green building standard, mm-hmm. which I think will be very interesting. And as an industry, I think we've got a bit of education to do for teams in the financial analysis sector Definitely. Uh, so that they are valued as appropriate as we've invested into them. Yeah, we spoke to a valuer last week and, you know, that's an interesting conversation around some of the challenges on valuation, especially that drive and where some people are latching on to the appreciation around the value and how they can use decarbonisation and use their drive to net zero within the building to actually raise the value through making the spaces one available to the types of clients that are willing to pay more for them, but also by driving their space to be the only space that's occupiable after a certain period of time. So there are going to be some properties that are going to have to change use or will just become dormant for a while whilst they can't be used. And, you know, those will get snapped up by small investors, but their actual value will take a bit of an impact. But you quite rightly mentioned the the regional analysis is not something that we really have a lot of data on, which is a bit of a challenge, Jonathan. Thank you. Another point, on the subject of valuation, I guess is, I mean, this is an open question, but is there a particular methodology or framework set of points that they cover within evaluation that means that whether you go to one firm or another, that they are writing in accordance with a set of yeah, criteria, for example. And I guess I just don't know whether the valuers understand how to value ESG or whether that has been developed yet in order for the insight and analysis to really mean something. What do I mean by that? I guess there are some fantastic properties out there. There are some really awful properties out there and there are some average ones out there. And, you know, how do you sort of go in between those and almost do what an EPC does, for example? I don't know. I just think given that they indicate how much somebody should 
pay for something or how much mm. something's worth. Perhaps that's an area for, you know, future collaboration. I think off the back of what we've just discussed, I think there's a question there that I can put to both of you really around that. I think there's a gap somewhere around that particular space. And it's linked to everything that we've been talking about, especially around ESG being included throughout the whole decision-making process. So whether a building needs to be refurbished, whether it needs to be rebuilt, which is obviously you know, one of the worst options because the embedded carbon that goes with knocking it down and putting it back up again is ridiculous, or whether it's a new design and build operation. So how does ESG become part of that whole entire journey? You know, if you look historically, we've gone through safety and design, we've gone through all of those types of principles that have become embedded into that whole design process. So having environment and sustainability embedded in there has to become part of the story and, and collaboratively as an industry working together to get to that point. So key points that you mentioned there as well, Amira, was around biodiversity. So Everyone's going to have to embrace biodiversity net gain with more confidence anyway, because of the changes in the planning reforms. But that, again, is also driving the health and well-being agenda, you know, and creating spaces and places that everybody wants to be in. But also it can help with, you know, drawing out carbon or offsetting embedded carbon and, and all of those types of activities that go with it. So there's kind of a points, not pounds premise sort of needed to be created there somewhere, you know, that you get extra points for these things from a CSR perspective rather than it just all coming down to pounds. I mean, Amira, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Or are there possibilities in that area? I think it could be seen as a points or pounds, depending on how you, I guess it comes back to that valuation, how you value biodiversity or the amenity in the space. So with Fraser's property in our business parks, in the fact that we own the business park also means that we own all the land between the buildings, um, the footpaths, the roads, the landscaping areas. So we have a much greater opportunity to improve all the amenity between the buildings. Recently, we've certified with a health and wellbeing certification called Fitwell, three of our business parks. Um, and it's just been certified as the largest Fitwell area certified globally. Um, and that really assesses the connectivity from a pedestrian, from a cyclist perspective, access to amenities, access to green spaces, outdoor fitness areas, healthy food is served within the business park, the emergency and safety procedures. It looks at the comprehensive view of health and well-being from an occupier's perspective. Mm. And for us, that's really important. And one of the key selling points of working within a business park is that you do have access to all these amenities. There are cycle ways that you can walk in, good access to public transport. So that is one of the main drivers of, of coming to a business park as well. Um, on top of all the biodiversity we have, so across our business parks, we've got three-year biodiversity improvement plans in place, um, looking at fauna and flora, prioritising local native species. It's also offered opportunities for occupier engagement where we've had our biodiversity and landscape specialists come in and invite occupiers to watch them or sort of learn how we extract honey from the beehives or creation of like a, a hedgehog house. So it's also offered opportunities for occupier engagement and sort of on the event side. For us, it's very important. And I guess you could say it's a value add of coming to a, a business park, are those elements. 
Excellent. What's your experience, Jonathan? Because I think you've probably got in the UK experience of a wider variation of property type and estate type. Yeah. So I guess if we were to just list some of those out, it will help me recall a few examples. So yeah, I guess they would cover logistics, shopping centers, retail parks, multi-let offices, city-based and non-city-based, also hotels as well. And I guess I can very much connect with the example that Amira gave there, whether it's working for clients that almost put and have put ESG at the forefront of their mission for many years, as in you know, since 2010, for example, it's in everything that they do. They look to invest in areas of the UK that you could argue are less fortunate than others in terms of their sort of demographic, I guess. And what that enables is spaces to be opened up for communities to enjoy not only a new way of shopping in terms of like a retail concept, but also to combine that with activities that may be things like children's birthday parties, recreation, and also nature reserves as well built within the same space. Mm-hmm. Looking into sort of the logistics asset class, it's not difficult. I think because they have such huge roof spaces, they certainly lend themselves to on-site renewables. Like anywhere, the importance of data is key, but also the heat loss from the fact that you have sort of big HGVs docking onto parts of the facade, unloading, loading, and making sure that that heat loss is not compromised. But then I think within logistics spaces, it's also making sure that there is a a community Sometimes you can do this by sort of looking at a social value assessment that will actually define a full value that an asset in whichever asset class could mean to a surrounding area. So if I take logistics for a second, you know, you might be looking at huge, huge areas, huge patches of land, huge buildings. And in order to to have those assets in sort of working order and servicing the needs of business, you need a you need people to come and and to work there. And that sometimes can benefit from having integrated travel plans that may have incorporated some kind of local review to ensure that a shift changes, that there is the right phasing of local transportation to pick them up, take them to the next place, that it's encouraged for all aspects of commuting, whether it be walking, cycling, what have you, and car sharing as well. So lift share, uh, I don't know, I think they're charity-based or an NGO. They are very supportive of trying to get not just sort of of out-of-town places, but everywhere across the UK, whoever you are, whether you're for business or pleasure, trying to get you to travel more sustainably and connect you with others that want to do the same. Going back to the social value point, though, and considering another asset class, sometimes as part of a planning requirement, particularly in an area of West London that one of our clients developed an asset, we're able to show that from that assessment, that asset was responsible for £28 million worth of value within that area in terms of employment and other factors following the national TOMS, the themes, outcomes and measures matrix in partnership with the social value portal. Mm -hmm. And within the first year, they're able to achieve another sort of £650,000 worth of social value as well once the building was in operation. So yeah, I think asset classes aside, there is something that can be drawn out of every asset class. It just tends to be, I've found that some of the 
larger major buildings within a city, for example, come mm. with the scale of rent premium and service charge, where it just means that by quantum of the energy consumption that they use as well, and your ability to control that, from my perspective as a managing agent or representing a managing agent, you have the greatest ability to deliver impact, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Amir, you mentioned a really good statistic earlier. You said that 20% of your occupiers are very much aligned to phrases overall in terms of the objective around that journey to net zero. It's a point we've been discussing over the weeks as well, that how much of the industry is actually prepared for this or is partway down the journey. And some of the conversations I've had are been around, you know, estimations of around 20 to 30 percent of organizations, large investors, big corporate occupiers, et cetera, are, are probably quite far down the line. They see the value in all this. They've been building this into their budgets for the last 10 years. You know, they're not, they haven't been not ignorant to it, I guess is not the right phrase, but they haven't been ignoring it or or sort of, you know, saying it's over there, we won't do anything about it just yet. So they've been prepared and they've seen the value in it and that's come through with all their budgets. So then they're not in a position of fear. You've then got maybe another 20%, 25% of organisations that are waking up to all of this. They're seeing it all around them. They're seeing it through their supply chains. If they're a B2B operator, then they're being asked questions they've never been asked before, you know, in terms of can you demonstrate your credibility around and your commitment to net zero, et cetera. So that essentially leaves around 45 to 50% that aren't really in a position to do anything at the moment or haven't really been considering, you know, what they should be doing. And a lot of those are going to face continual challenges going forward. There'll be small family owners, you know, whatever that might be. Jonathan, have you got any experience or what's your view around that? What sort of numbers would you put on that A percentage of people that aren't quite prepared yet? I think understanding the scale of who would fall within that sort of, you know, the net, the the boundary. Yeah, I that, think that's an interesting one. Your small prop codes and stuff like that is what comes into mind. You know, they might own... 50 small retail units across London, or they might, you know, they might own 30% of their local high street. They're a small family investor that have been, you know, investing for a hundred years or something like that. I see a big challenge coming out from those organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in context, I guess those with a corporate reputation or a brand or in the way that they are financed or they are financing their purchase of assets, that I think defines the maturity and the incorporation of ESG in that sense. So you're right, there are many private high net worth individuals or attached to organizations and depending on how much they're leveraged, it really is dependent on the allocation of cash as to whether or not they have to convey they are operating at a certain level with respect to ESG that satisfies the bank's lending requirements. With a corporate brand, with institutional investors and with cash that's raised attached to a funds policy that we invest in assets where we would like EPCs minimum A and B and we'll look to achieve BRIAM in use within the first two years of our hold and have a net zero asset plan as well. That's altogether very different. So to kind of consider how could we measure that, whether we looked at floor area values, I'd find that really difficult. I would just probably say that most corporate brands and institutional asset managers have a plan, have a strategy. Mm. 
and those attached to more privately driven investments in real estate are the unknown. So I think you'd almost have to look at a capital allocation to provide an accurate response there. And I'm not quite sure how you get that. Listen, I think we could almost say, you know, 50-50 almost, but it's unknown. Yeah, absolutely unknown. But I think it's one of those things that's very much out there. And there are two questions to you, I guess, on that point. One, what are your thoughts around that generally? And two, when you mentioned that 20% across the estate that are very much aligned and are there, do you have anything at the other scale that would potentially, you know, cause you challenges as you go forward? I think it might come down for the first question regarding smaller, perhaps like private asset owners or managers. There might be three drivers for them. The first driver to improve their assets to align with where the sector is going, which is decarbonisation. First one would be competition. So even if they were only invested from a profit or a revenue perspective or depending on what their business model was, they still have to remain competitive. And ESG is now seen, you have to be competitive on ESG as well. Otherwise, you're already behind. The second thing would be the stick approach regulation. So as Jonathan said, we're looking to see tougher regulations coming through from the UK government. Often these are targeted at larger organisations. But now with the EPC being a minimum of B by 2030, that will encapsulate all asset owners in the UK and all buildings. So that's probably a stick approach. And the good thing is, is that we've got, well, some say we, we don't have enough time, but we do have time. We've been given warning that this is what we have to do over the next sort of eight, nine years to ensure that our EPCs are meeting a minimum of B by 2030. And then the last approach or driver would be using and utilising the supply chain. So it might be them asking the question to their suppliers or occupants, what are you doing around ESG, sustainability? What services or products do you offer that meet these sustainability requirements? So it might be putting the onus on another party to help meet some of their targets, which I just think is part of general engagement with the supply chain, asking those questions. Do you have a green product or service in addition to the usual products or services that we already procure from you? And then in regards to your second question, whether there's a portion of our occupiers where sustainability might not be on their agenda, I think for those occupiers, it is again, like it's those really, really small family run businesses where they're just interested in maintaining or increasing their profit for <laughs> to pay their bills because this is their, it's not just the job, it's their livelihood. So in those instances, Fraser's can support and do support those occupiers just by providing sort of basic information about depending on how long their lease is, whether they were interested in making small changes with like a very short payback period, such as upgrading the lighting system to LED or more efficient lights. And payback is now sort of three years for LED lights. So it's more just that perhaps awareness raising and saying how Fraser's or how BNP Paribas could support them to decarbonize or sort of address climate change from their perspective. 
it's one of those things that regulation is good and regulations coming and it's demonstrated itself through the epc function of already improving you know the efficiency driving out the f and g properties i think going back to you know the points we were raising earlier around when the building's in use that's going to be tomorrow's challenge but what's really good is that so many people are discussing it already you know we we have clients where we help them get strategically to a point where they want to be. So let's say across our entire portfolio, we want to be band B in every state as a minimum. So back at Shell and Core, whatever it might be, it has to be a minimum of a band B. They'll then have a green lease structure, which basically says that you can only improve from that. So again, it's just one of those points around collaboration. I think it's been really clear throughout the whole conversation that collaboration is key to this and having people like yourselves in positions of influence and being able to drive collaboration across what you do is really important so i guess i don't know on a personal note i'd say keep doing what you're doing and keep driving collaboration and <laughs> as a as a kind of closing piece if you could influence the uk government today amira what would be your message to them my message would be I'd like to see more considerate policies and regulations to drive down emissions that I guess are appropriate for different uh, varying levels of operations and organisations. However, still not losing the fact that we do need to decarbonize. We need to address climate change. We need to make a positive impact on the environment. So I'm in favour of more regulations, but perhaps there should be more appropriate to different organisations in regards to their size. Brilliant. Thank you. Jonathan, I'll ask you the same question. Yeah, I would build on what Amira said, but I also think in terms of having an interpretable list of policies that drives action, I also think having visibility on how we're doing and almost the transparency on data and the quality of data is really important as well. And it sounds a bit abstract, but if you start with some of the articles that we've all been reading over the last two weeks with COP26, things like with the outcome that was achieved from discussions, you see that we were able to sort of get from, I think it was around about 52 or 56 down to 42 in that metric uh, of the graph they show, but actually we need to be getting down to 30. I think it was the BBC website that had this graphic showing. I just don't know how often people are seeing that level of carbon emissions that we're at and where we need to get to and by when. I just don't know how visible that is. And it's almost if it's that important, which it is, because it's going to damage Earth as we know it, then for me, it's also building upon the fact that this stuff needs to be visible. It needs to be part of a business's reputation in terms of how they're contributing to that. And I think more and more firms that are able to do so need to commit more resource to helping this happen, even to the point where in terms of policy instruments, it may be best coming from an economist how best you can incentivize or, or make things happen. So I might suggest one thing, but I'm sure as some other economists have mentioned, maybe potentially putting a price on carbon might help. But certainly around tax incentives, I think if there were 
which there are for new builds, tax relief on building new efficient buildings, if there was the same tax reliefs whereby you could explain that by refurbishing a property that you were contributing to a lower level of embodied carbon, surely that's worth incentivizing in terms of tax reduction. And I think in terms of passing things on to government, I'd certainly look at the way they tax and promote new build over refurbishment of existing. But I think corporate entities and ourselves as individuals need to be encouraged and to see role models and to see a new connection with business. Some people might call it purpose, but we need something to help us get there and to help us collaborate with one another because it's often not for people like myself or Amira or yourself, but it's often once COP has been and gone, it doesn't have the same spotlight. And actually, it's only since a well-viewed TV platform has produced a, almost a daily climate briefing that I think that's the start of people sort of starting to see our path along mm. this reduction pathway in the same way that we look at a weather forecast or the news. It, it almost needs to be in that same light and it needs to be present within everything that we do. And then that's the truest sense of collaboration. It needs to be rewarded. We can get there, but without collaboration and without talking about these things in a connected sense, which are well-resourced by businesses and part of their business model, I think that's another thing as well, which where I see not government can necessarily play a role, but I do think they can work with business to sort of understand how business strategies of now and the future can be incorporated into Amira's suggestions. Excellent. Both really good answers. Thank you very much. Okay, that's the end of this week's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.